Welcome here. My name is uh, Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Central. Um, it is just a privilege to be here with you this morning. If you guys have a Bible, you can turn to uh, the book of Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be uh, just continuing on in our summer series in the book of Philippians. Um, so that would be great. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, my official title here at Central is the Children and Family Pastor, which is just a fancy way of saying I get the coolest job, okay? <laughs> Because I mostly get to hang out with kids, which is just amazing. So um, the other thing, uh, though, I get to do is just walk alongside parents uh, as they're doing this crazy thing called parenting. So uh, for those of you who are parents in the room, I am here to support you, okay? Just so you guys know, I'm here to pray for you, encourage you, give you resources, tools, uh, things to help you in the journey. Um, and I'm also here to help you. Uh, teach your children on Sunday mornings. Um, I'm not normally here at this campus. Actually, I just have to share. This is a, a, a kind of a special moment for me. Uh, six years ago, I was in a church in Abbotsford, and we um, joined another church here in Chilliwack six years ago that used to meet here in this, uh, in this space. And the very first service I ever took in, because they were a multi-campus church, they had two campuses, was in this campus. So I remember six years ago, I sat where you guys were, and I took in my first service of a church in Chilliwack, um, and I watched, um, I watched in dismay as the video feed, because they were a multi-campus church, they had a video feed of the preacher. It was the first time their video feed did not work. So my, my, friend, my good friend Aaron actually had to get up and preach a sermon fresh, like from scratch. Uh, so that was my very first day at, at church in Chilliwack. Um, so it's kind of special for me. Uh, that's why they send us here live. Uh, with, that's why we don't do a satellite uh, preaching thing anymore. Um, so I'm here. I'm here, and I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, let me tell you a little bit about a story from my childhood for those of you, again, who don't know me. This will give you a chance to get to know me. It'll help illustrate where we're going this morning as well. So um, I grew up in the 1980s. If you grew up in the 1980s or earlier, you may remember something called a record player, a record player. I got my first record player when I was three years old, um, and I remember, uh, I remember being three, four, five, and uh, you know, I, it was a Fisher Price record player, and I would, I remember moving the little needle over and laying on my bed, and what I would listen to were not um, music. I wouldn't listen to music. My grandma and my mom gave me story records. So they were basically um, like audio, they weren't even just like audio books, they were more like a radio play, so they had lots of voices and characters. And so I would, I would listen to these stories uh, on my little record player, and my two favorite stories that um, they gave me were Humpty Dumpty and a, a, a completely forgotten record called What's the Matter, Nanny Bird? What's the Matter, Nanny Bird? This is like a Christian story album. And you guys have no idea. Two weeks ago, I Googled, did What's the Matter, Nanny Bird actually exist? Did I just invent this in my head? No, it actually existed. And there it is. I found a picture of it. And I used to just stare at this thing. And I used to wonder what, what was going on with the weird saxophone slug guy up in the, the left corner. Never really figured that out. Um, so anyway, what happened with these two, these two albums by Providence is that um, no one had ever told me that you had to turn the record over to hear the entirety of the story. So as luck would have it, or Providence would have it, 
I, uh, I listened to the first half of What's the Matter, Nanny Bird, and I never listened to the second half. So I never found out how her, solu- uh, like how her problem got solved. And when I listened to Humpty Dumpty, I listened to the second half. So I picked up the story when he was already in pieces at the bottom of the wall, right? And I always wondered, how did Humpty Dumpty get here? I had no idea. My brother finally one day uh, showed me how to turn the record over and my problem was solved. So anyway, I was, as I was thinking about this kind of funny uh, situation, it reminded me um, of just, it just kind of illustrates um, something that we're going to find here in Philippians 4, which is actually a very relevant issue for us um, just in culture today, in the church, everywhere. Um, and that is these two records illustrate the problems of depression and anxiety. Uh, What's the Matter, Nanny Bird highlights the problem of depression, namely the question, what's the matter? Like Nanny Bird, those who struggle with depression are left with the same question, what's the matter with me? Or as Psalm 42 would say, why are you downcast, O my soul? When we are depressed, when we're sad, when we're downcast, when we lack joy, We're not sure why, and we may not even know the solution. Just like I never found out the solution because I never turned the record over, some people who are struggling with depression feel stuck without a solution either. It feels like an unfinished record of your life, and you don't know what is the matter. In the case of Humpty Dumpty, it illustrates the problem of anxiety, namely the situation Humpty is in. I'm in pieces, and I don't know why. That's the experience of anxiety. When we're anxious, our minds swirl in a thousand directions. We feel fragmented and chaotic. The Greek word that Paul uses in Philippians for uh, being anxious literally means to be pulled apart. So if you're a human being here this morning, you have probably had to deal at some point in your life, possibly on a daily basis, with the mental beast we call anxiety, and possibly with its evil twin, depression. They're very linked ideas, and I wanna show you a proverb about this. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. You see the link there? Anxiety, it starts with anxiety, but it weighs us down. The result is depression. But a good word makes him glad. If you identify with this struggle, if you feel weighed down or anxious or sad or depressed, my prayer is Philippians 4 will be a good word for you this morning. So let's look at Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As I was saying earlier, anxiety and depression are, they're not new problems. They are really just part of the human condition, but they are in our current cultural waters, an increasingly big issue, and they present new challenges for us. If you aren't directly affected by anxiety or depression in a severe way, you still deal with it time to time, and the chances are good that you have a friend, a brother, a child, a parent, a neighbor who is dealing with this issue. In 2010, the IMS Health Report recorded that 253 million prescriptions were written for antidepressants in the U.S. The population of the U.S. is just over 300 million. That's a lot of antidepressants. The rate of U.S. adolescents and young adults dying of suicide has reached its highest level in nearly two decades, according to a report published in the Journal of American Medical Association in just June of this year. In 2017, there were 47% more suicides among kids aged 15 to 19 than in the year 2000. It's the second leading cause of suicide among teenagers in the U.S. Anxiety disorders now affect 25% of children ages 13 to 18. Research shows untreated children with anxiety disorders are at a higher risk of performing poorly in school, missing out on important social experiences, and engaging in substance abuse. And there's many factors that play into this rise in these things, including smartphone use, social media use, and related issues from those. But there's lots of things that give us anxiety. We worry about work. We worry about the direction of our culture. We worry about our families. We worry about what people think of us. We worry about our future. We worry about church. It's likely the situation in Philippi that Paul is dealing with with these two women who are fighting because they're leading women in the church. Eodia and Syntyche, he mentions, this is causing anxiety for the church. Conflicts, relational conflicts, there's all kinds of things that can cause anxiety. But however it comes, anxiety mainly impacts our mental life. We worry about the worst case scenario in any given situation. Anxiety is future-oriented as well. It's all about what could happen, not what is happening. Depression, on the other hand, impacts our emotional life mainly. We feel regrets and sadness about things that could have been in the past, or we feel hopeless about the future. The result of anxiety and depression is we walk through life with no joy, or peace. Anxiety is a direct enemy of peace. Anxiety means to be pulled apart. Peace means to be whole and complete, like Humpty being put back together. Depression, on the other hand, is the enemy of joy. Some of us don't even realize this is what we're struggling with, but we're just irritable. We're avoiding people. We're constantly tired. We feel numb to life. We're short of breath. 
We can barely get out of bed. We wonder, what's the matter with me? And for those who really struggle with deep depression or crushing anxiety, words often fail to describe the feelings. All we can do is speak in metaphors. I feel like I'm slogging through a swamp. I feel like I'm walking through fog. I feel gray all the time. Charles Spurgeon said, the mind can descend far lower than the body. For the mind, there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Yet, as much as we would recognize that this is a common struggle that a lot of people are struggling with, we still have a hard time admitting our anxiety or depression, our experiences common to people in the church. In the church, we struggle to understand those who walk through this and be compassionate towards them. The result is we become like Job's friends. Job said his friends, you know, his friends hung out with him for a little while, but then they became miserable comforters, he said. And that's what we can become as well. Instead of being there for those who are struggling, we put an extra weight of guilt and heaviness on their shoulders by saying something flippant, like, I should just get over it. I'll just stop worrying. Making it sound easy for them to get out of this. We could even read Philippians 4, 6 that way. See, Paul says rejoice. He says, don't be anxious. So just do it. Get over it. But our tone matters. The way we communicate with one another matters in the church. Generally speaking, I think we're all a little bit shocked when we hear a Christian is struggling with depression or anxiety. What? You're struggling? Christians don't struggle. Are you a Christian? We might wonder things like this. We do this to our kids. My daughter struggles with depression at night, or sorry, anxiety at night. And it's like the fifth night in a row. And what do I do as a loving father to my little girl? I say, just stop worrying. I got a rolled eyes and a frustrated tone. And you know what this does to her? She sees I'm frustrated. It makes her worry more. Why? Because she... She feels she's upset me. She worries more. I compound the problem. I don't know how to help her because I've not said these words in love. In these moments, I'm guilty, in fact, of being anxious myself about my child's anxiety. So I try to fix the problem instead of listening and understanding first. And maybe some of us get the listening part down, but we don't really understand the person's sadness or grief or anxiety and so we don't have compassion for them. We just say, hey, you know, I've listened, I've listened long enough. You, you should just get over it now. But here's what we do to people who are crushed by depression and anxiety. And here's what I want you to understand about them. Is that when someone's soul is in turmoil, when they are anxious, they don't know how to get over it. They don't know even what's wrong with them. 
it's not a simple solution for them. So we must speak with compassion. And this is how Paul speaks in this letter. Paul's tone is not, just stop being anxious already. Just be joyful for crying out loud. And here's why we shouldn't read his words that way. Remember, Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. He's a prisoner in a Roman prison, which is not like the Lululemon of prisons. It's like the Walmart of prisons. This is like a low-level, not fun place. And Paul understands what it means to suffer while in prison. And while he is there, he says himself in chapter 2, verse 28, that he is experiencing anxiety. He says this. He says he wants to send Epaphroditus to the Philippian church. And he says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Paul's anxious. He's in prison. He's anxious about the church. Whatever the anxiety is, he's, he's working through it himself. And so listen to his tone at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, my brothers, sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He's just like gushing about these people that he loves. Paul's words to us about joy and anxiety should not be heard as a get-it-together kind of command. They're an expression of his desire to see the church become more joyful and increase in their peace level and be less and less anxious, but they're spoken with love. They are a command, a command in love. Isn't the reason we don't want to admit that we struggle with these things sometimes in the church is because we don't think people will understand. But this is a common struggle. It's a common struggle. And we shouldn't be surprised when a Christian is struggling with joy or struggling with anxiety. It's a heavy world and people feel it for a myriad of reasons. I'm just gonna go through a few Bible characters who struggled with depression and anxiety. King David, Elijah, Naomi, Job, Martha, Gideon, Jeremiah, Paul, me, one of your pastors. And I'll tell you a little bit more about my story at the end. David said in Psalm 42, my soul is cast down. My spirit is in turmoil. That's how he felt. That's David talking. Charles Spurgeon, William Cowper, Randy Alcorn. I mean, I could just go on. There's so many spiritual giants that struggle with this. By the way, I'm not calling myself part of that group, okay? Just so you know. There's lots of factors behind depression, anxiety, both physical and spiritual. So let us walk with grace. Let us be a, a community that exemplifies love and understanding toward one another, seeking to listen first. Now, with all that said, let's talk about a couple of pitfalls in dealing with these issues before we get into Paul's practices that he's going to give us for dealing with this. So a couple of, a couple of pitfalls we could fall into. The first pitfall 
would be what I call hyper-spiritualizing the problem. The hyper-spiritual person says, all I have to do is pray, and my anxiety should just go away. I don't need to look at my lifestyle or my other spiritual practices, and I don't need to think about how my body plays a part in my anxiety and depression. And when the hyper-spiritual person prays about their ailment and doesn't receive an immediate answer, they begin to doubt, and they heap more guilt and shame upon their faith. Well, maybe I'm not spiritual enough, or this would have gone away. Maybe I lacked faith. To the hyper-spiritual, the answer is always sin and couldn't be anything else. Now, don't mishear me. It could be sin that's causing your anxiety. You may be failing to trust God, but the hyper-spiritual person refuses to look at other possibilities. They essentially are Gnostics who believe the soul is the only thing that matters and the body doesn't really matter. But this is a denial of the Bible's teaching about the integration of the soul and the body and how God cares for our bodies. They're a temple of his Holy Spirit. So it's very possible if you're here this morning and you struggle with this, you may have something medically wrong. Medically wrong, and you need to go see a medical doctor. And this is not an unspiritual thing to do. God gave us a body. Sickness in our body, our brain can impact and will impact how we think and feel. Second pitfall would be the opposite extreme. We could call it naturalizing the problem. The naturalist person says, all I need is a pill. And I don't need to change my lifestyle. I don't need to confront sin in my life. I don't need to spend time in prayer or reading the scriptures. The naturalist believes it's only and could only be chemicals in the brain and nothing spiritual could be factoring in at all. The naturalist sees no need to consult with maybe a pastor or a counselor because they just need a prescription so they can get on with life. What these have in common is they're both looking for a quick fix solution. And neither the hyper-spiritual response nor the naturalist response are interested in making lifestyle changes, dealing with unhealthy or sinful patterns of thought, or getting to the root of the problem. But like I said, there can be many causes. Past trauma, bitterness, lack of rest, poor diet, slow and steady losses in life, unbelief and doubt. A myriad of physical and spiritual things can be factoring in. David said again in Psalm 31, you have known the distress of my soul. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted with grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Do you hear the integration of soul and body in David's language? So we would advocate to you a holistic approach. We got to look at everything and how it's playing in to your anxiety or your depression. David's darkness of soul led to his body wasting away. And a Christian view would say our body and our soul are distinct, but they are so interconnected, they're inseparable, and they affect one another. I want to give you one more biblical example of this. Elijah. 
Many of you know the story of Elijah as the guy who had this awesome contest against the prophets of Baal. It was like 400 against one up on Mount Carmel. And he said, I dare you, you know, to call out to your God and let's see who answers, my God or your God. And of course, they cry out all morning and, and he taunts them and like makes fun of them. And no one listens. But Elijah's God answers by fire. Yahweh hears Elijah's prayer and answers by fire. Great moment, victory won. The only problem was most of the people did not repent after this event. And Queen Jezebel, she threatens Elijah to kill him. And so Elijah runs off into the wilderness, discouraged, depressed, fearful, anxious, and he wants to die. We don't talk about that story so much. (laughs) He travels to Mount Sinai. That's where he wants to go because he wants to head back to a place of spiritual power. But on the way, God knows he's not going to make it. And so he falls asleep and God sends him an angel. You know what the angel gives him? Food. How unspiritual of that angel. You need food, Elijah. You're not going to make it, Elijah. Goes a little further, falls asleep again. Angel comes the second time. More food. And the angel reaches out and touches his body. He needed physical touch. He needed to know somebody was with him. Physical needs. Elijah's not going to make it. But that's not all. Elijah also has spiritual needs. He needs to meet with God. So when he finally arrives at Mount Sinai, the Lord says, why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah is expecting this big display of power. But of course, you guys know the story. God's not in the wind. He's not in the fire. He's not in the earthquake. But he's in this silent silence or a whisper. In this stillness, God meets Elijah in his need. We'll talk a little bit more about why that matters. But he had physical and he had soul needs to deal with this problem. So as we look at Paul's teaching in Philippians 4, we need to be aware of how this fits into a holistic approach. Paul's not a medical doctor, neither am I, and it's possible you need to to go see one, but it's also possible that like Elijah, you need a spiritual You have a spiritual problem and you need to meet with the Lord in some special way. So we're going to look at a few spiritual practices that Paul is going to address in Philippians chapter 4 that can help us with our lack of joy and with anxiety. So first, uh, if you look down at the bottom of the passage, which we didn't read, I want to just bring this into it because it's connected. It's a a larger passage. It's connected. Verse 9 says, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The these things Paul is talking about is everything in verses 4 to 9. In other words, in Paul's mind, all the instructions in verses 4 to 9 are what Paul calls practices. If those of you who know like sports, uh, ever watch TSN or something like that and you're watching... Uh, sometimes they do like little highlights from the week of, 
of sport. Well, they do this every week, actually. Um, but years ago, there was this classic clip of a NBA player named Allen Iverson. And uh, he's a Hall of Famer. He's retired now. But uh, at the time, he had finished a playoff game, and uh, his team lost. And the interviewers, uh, all the media, they were peppering him with questions about, like, hey, you've been skipping practices. Why, why don't you show up in more practices? Maybe that would help your team. And in this classic clip, you can go YouTube it later, okay? Um, Iverson says the word practice 15 times in the course of a minute. He's like, practice? What are we talking about practice? I'm talking about the game. You're talking about practice? We're talking about practice. And he just goes on about practice, practice. So I had that in my head as I was thinking about practice. Because in Philippians, we're talking about practice. We're talking about practice. Practice is not something you do occasionally or when it fits into your schedule or when you feel like it. Practices shape our schedule. Practices shape us. It's something we do regularly. We must practice these things. So if you're having trouble with anxiety or depression and you read just a few words of scripture, you pray one time and you expect it to be like a magic wand and all, everything just goes away, you've maybe misheard what God's word is teaching us. My, my son's vice principal uses this phrase, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes progress. And I think we need to set our eyes on that reality in the Christian life that we're not perfect. Paul says that earlier in chapter 3. We don't expect perfection, but we do want to progress. We want to move forward. And that takes practice. So I can't promise you a magic wand. Paul doesn't, he doesn't promise you that. But what he does promise you is some healthy practices. So the first practice Paul talks about is the practice of rejoicing. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. But how? How do we get our hearts to rejoice when we're struggling to believe and to feel? This just seems too simplistic to say rejoice when I don't feel I can rejoice. My problem is I'm depressed. I can't rejoice. I want to, but I can't. How can you tell me to rejoice when I can't rejoice? But notice what Paul says. He doesn't say Rejoice in your circumstance. He tells them to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That is the key. Your circumstance might be terrible. Your circumstance might be fine, but whatever it is, their circumstances, they will change. And if our joy is in our circumstances, it will rise and fall with whatever happens in life so Paul says, put your joy into Jesus. Put your joy into Jesus. Remember that no one can take Jesus away from you. Nothing can separate us from his love, not even depression or anxiety. This doesn't mean you have to walk around with a smile all day. You might be going through something very difficult. Joy in Jesus is an anchor deep in your soul that holds you even through difficulty. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. But how can I express this joy? What's a practice I can do to help me rejoice in Jesus and not in my circumstance? 
Well, we might ask the question, what did Paul do? How did Paul express his rejoicing in Christ? If you remember um, a story in the book of Acts, when Paul actually first started this church in Philippi, he was arrested, him and Silas, and they were thrown into prison. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, this is the guards uh, harming uh, Paul and Silas, inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas were in a terrible situation, and yet they rejoiced in the Lord by praying, which we're going to get to in a second, and singing. To the Hebrews, one of the most natural ways to express joy and rejoicing was through song. They're almost, almost synonymous. After Israel crossed through the Red Sea, Psalm 105, verse 43 reminds us, he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Joy and singing. They sang. Psalm 149, verse 1 to 3, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. And I like to throw this out there for anyone who's Mennonite or maybe Dutch. Let them praise his name with dancing. <laughs> dancing. <laughs> See, it's, it's right there in the Bible. You should dance. So is your mind pulled apart and anxious? Does your soul feel like it's sinking? Practice rejoicing in Jesus through song. Sing to your soul. Sing to your soul. You know, you probably know a lot of Christian songs. You sing them like on Sundays, right? You probably have them in your memory more than you think you do. Use those in life. Sing to yourself. Rejoice in the Lord even when it's hard, even when you don't feel like it. Practice it. Second practice. Paul goes on to say, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Here Paul doesn't call us just to a practice. He actually just encourages us. He says, don't be anxious, and then he reminds us why. The Lord Jesus is near to us. And some believe that this is talking about Jesus' second coming. So he's near. He's going to come back, in other words. But most commentators see this as a statement about God's loving, immediate presence. It is possible, of course, that Paul leaves this deliberately vague, and he actually means both ideas. Jesus is here and he's coming soon. Whatever it is, they're both encouragements for us. Paul's encouragement here is different than the way Peter encourages us to deal with anxiety. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What Peter emphasizes there is God's transcendence. He's a big God, a mighty God. He can carry your burdens so easily. So give them to him. Throw them onto his big shoulders is what Peter's saying. 
And that is very helpful. But Paul encourages us with something different, a complementary truth. He doesn't emphasize God's transcendence. He encourages us with God's imminence. God is close. Jesus is near to you. You are not alone. You are never alone if you're a Christian. He's with you. It reminds me of Jacob's story in Genesis. Jacob runs away from his brother Esau, and he's anxious as well, and he's fearful, and he falls asleep at night laying on a rock for his pillow, and Jacob has a dream of a ladder to heaven, or for all the Led Zeppelin fans, a stairway to heaven, okay? That's where that comes from, by the way, just, just in case you didn't know. So he has, a, he has a dream of a ladder to heaven, and when he awakes from the dream, Jacob realizes that this, this dream means that Heaven and earth are more connected than he realized, and that God is near to him. God's presence is much closer to him than he realized. The problem was not that God was not there. It was that Jacob was not aware. He says, this is the holy place. I just didn't know it. So what's a practice for being more aware of God's presence? And here we're going to get into something Elijah discovered. And it's one of the most under-practiced spiritual disciplines today for cultivating awareness of the presence of God. And it's called solitude. <laughs> and solitude sounds like a really lonely. But what it means, what it means is not just being alone, but removing yourself strategically from the noise and the crowd to spend intentional time with Christ. Jesus regularly practiced this to spend time with his heavenly father, and he drew strength. So one of the questions you might ask yourself if you struggle with this is, am I in a practice of meeting alone with Jesus on the regular? Regularly practicing that. Dallas Willard said, solitude frees us. The normal course of day-to-day -day human interactions locks us into patterns of feeling and thought and action that are geared to a world set against God so we have to break out of that world at strategic times to get away from that so we can be aware that God is near. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Now, if you get a lot of solitude in your life, I would practice the opposite thing as well. Practice community. Because... Isn't it true that through our church community, we experience God's nearness? For some of us, we spend a lot of time alone. We need to get around other people. We need to have other Christians speak into our lives. We need to get close to people because that is how we will experience God's closeness and God's nearness. So wherever you're at, practice one of those or both of those, and you will know what Paul says is that the Lord is near and do not be anxious about anything. And then a third practice. Paul leads us into a final practice and he says, in everything but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
That's a wonderful promise from God's word of an experience of peace that only Jesus can give. A lot of people are practicing things like mindfulness these days. This is kind of like a secular form of, of meditation. There is a Time magazine released a big issue this summer called The Science of Happy, over dozens of articles about the scientific research, finding practices like mindfulness and also gratitude, a secular form of gratitude, are actually scientifically shown to increase your happiness levels. But here's the thing. In a secularized version of those things, they're incomplete because you have nothing in mindfulness to meditate on. You have no truth of God to meditate on. And if you're showing gratitude but you don't know Christ, you're ultimately giving a big thank you to the universe? No one. But what's great for us as believers is we know the God that we get to thank. We know him and we get to thank him. We have a promise from Paul of true peace given by Christ who will guard our hearts and minds. And you can just imagine Paul sitting in prison looking at the Roman guard going, ah, that's what Jesus does. He guards us. He guards us. That's the picture of what Christ will do for us if we pray, but not just pray, pray thankfully. You notice he includes that word in there. He says, with thanksgiving. Not just prayer, but thankful prayer. And that is how we will experience peace. Some years ago, when my wife and I were dating, this is like early 2000s, um, we, used to, um, we used to make smoothies together. So that was like my way of flirting with my wife, right? Hey, let's go make some smoothies. That was not like just a pickup line, okay? It was... Let's go make some smoothies. So uh, we went out one time to uh, an old restaurant called Night and Day. Do you guys remember Night and Day? It was like the K for night, right? Night and Day. And uh, we went there. We are just on a date, and we ordered some smoothies. And uh, we're, we're talking to each other, and we just start sipping our smoothies. And it was one of those experiences where we're like, huh, what? We just got distracted by the smoothie. This is so good. What is going on in this smoothie right now? So we, we asked the server, like, what is the secret to this smoothie? This is like the best smoothie we've ever had. And she's like, um, I'll get an answer. She goes back, finds an answer for us. And she's like, uh, there's coconut milk in it. Oh. So, like, we went and started putting coconut milk in our smoothies and it was the secret ingredient. It worked. It was like we were making these amazing smoothies. Um, and it made them instantly better. It was the secret ingredient. And that is a picture of what thanksgiving, if we add thanksgiving into our prayers, it also is the secret ingredient that transforms our prayers. If we are, have real and honest thankfulness to Jesus for the things we're genuinely thankful for, not like fake, fake thanks, right? Because we're trying to be holy but like you're really being thankful. That is the secret ingredient for your prayers and for God's promise of supernatural peace. And just like, believe it, it works. I was practicing this for the last couple of weeks. 
And I was praying anxiously. And I found that when I brought thanksgiving into my prayers, everything changed. Thanksgiving is a wonderful, wonderful thing that brings joy. Prayer is the kindling for the flame of joy, but thankfulness is the wind that fans the flame into a mighty fire. It reminds me of my wife's grandpa, Walter Thiessen. He passed away a few years ago. We have a Walter Thiessen in our church. He goes to our, our Chilliwack campus. Actually, it's a funny story because Grandpa Walter called Walter Thiessen from our church. He has no connection to him. He called him up one time just to find... He wanted to talk to all the Walter Thiessens in the phone book. So it's kind of a cool connection. That's the only time they ever talked. So um, when, when Grandpa Walter, though, when he wasn't putting butter in his coffee... And when he wasn't eating spoonfuls of gravy from KFC, those are loving comments, by the way. Those are things we love about Grandpa. Uh, he was usually sitting peacefully in his chair in the, last, in the last years. And anytime we were over for dinner, Grandpa would be called upon to pray. And when Grandpa Thiessen would pray, we all sensed not so much that he started praying but that we got to jump into a conversation he was already having with Jesus. That's, that's the way he prayed. And so, he always started, though, his prayers, when we got to jump in, he started like this. We thank you, Heavenly Father. We thank you, Heavenly Father. His prayers always started like that. He was so thankful for his life. And he walked in peace. He walked in peace. Look, those are just a few practices that can help. We haven't talked about everything to rekindle joy and to make us free from anxiety, but those are some practices that we are called to walk in to produce joy in our lives. Let me just end with just a, a quick part of my story, and I don't share this with you just to talk about myself. I just, just to encourage you if this is something um, that you struggle with. Uh, two years ago, I've struggled with depression for years, but two years ago, I walked into a dark cloud for about a year, and probably nobody knew except for my wife and a few other close friends, and I honestly had no idea what was going on. It was a very uh, weird experience, but I'll tell you what, what got me through it was friends, people who understood in our church. Pastor Matt, you guys have no idea, was just such a brother to me in that time would read psalms over me and stuff. And I went and saw a counselor, and he identified about 10 factors, <laughs> 10 different things. And through that and through identifying some of those and putting in some healthier practices and, and digging up some things, God has been so good to me, been so good to me. And if you're in that place where you're feeling hopeless and you're feeling like, where is God? There's hope. And we want to come around you as your church. We want to help you through that. 
But why don't we close this morning by just being thankful? Why don't I pray for us, okay? Let's pray. Father, uh, you are so good. God, we just want to say thank you uh, for your word this morning, Lord. Thank you for the practices that you give us, Lord. Thank you for all that you do in our lives. God, we thank you for our friends. We thank you for our church friends. We thank you for our families. We thank you for our children. Lord, we thank you for music. God, we thank you for your creation and the beauty that we see and the artistry and the design, Lord, that inspires us. God, we thank you for your love that you show through your church. God, we thank you for so many things. And Father, I pray for those this morning who are struggling, who are anxious, who are downcast, Lord, would you lift them up? God, would you give them some answers, some wisdom for what they're struggling with? And would you walk with them, Lord, closely this week? And for those of us who don't struggle with this at all, God, make us good counselors, good friends. Help us to walk with compassion and understanding. We thank you, Lord, for what uh, your word means to us today. Help us to rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen.